Before we jump into this episode, let's hear from our friend Joseph and the Cognitive Discourse. Why, hello there. I'm about to make a prediction. And that prediction is, you like podcasts. If that's true, then make your way over to the Cognitive Discourse, where we have monologues, short stories, and open discussions. And every now and then I get a little ranty. If this sounds like something you're interested in, then go check us out. We're streaming on all major platforms, and hell, we're even on YouTube. New episodes out every Friday. I hope to see you there. I am Matthew Thomas. This is Super Cool Radio. Have a great guest with me at this time. He's the band director and guitarist for Brett Michaels. He's an author and also has his own candle company that is Shining Soul. Please welcome Pete Evick. Hello, Matthew. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing really good. I've definitely been looking forward to uh, chatting with you. I think we're going to have a really great time. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm certain of it already. <laughs> right on. I know we got much to discuss with the new music coming out and everything that you are working on, but I'm going to start with this question. Uh, what is one thing that you learned about yourself because of the pandemic? <laughs> I learned a lot of things about myself. because I think we all did. Um, I, I don't know if I learned about myself, but what I have said uh with questions similar to that is I learned what I don't need. Um, it, it was very eye-opening and let you trim a lot of fat out of your life if you let that come in. Um, I believe in the world we live in, there's an enormous amount of static, an enormous amount of noise. Uh, and COVID taught me very specifically what and who I do not need in my life. I don't know if that's the kind of answer you're looking for, but that's that's what I have. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. There's there's so much going on. I mean, obviously with everything, there's still a lot of things going on. But for at least for me, I kind of um, whittled down like everything that I needed to do. Like I just did it. You know, I, I did everything to like the bare necessities at that point. Right. I, it really showed people like you don't need all of this stuff going on yeah. in your life. That's exactly it. That's exactly exactly it. Um, I. I it's, it's, it's terrible what happened, um, but I think that overall, society may have came out of this um, better, maybe. Maybe. I don't, I don't know if that's the right thing to say, but, uh, you know, I feel like a lot of people are like me. You just said the same thing. You, you, you were able to cut out an enormous amount of the static in your life, it sounds like, and, and maybe make time for the things that are really important and, you know. I, I think that's what we all came through with it. No, I definitely know what you mean. I think um, I think people's mentalities, I think, are better now. Like because you didn't know what was happening either day to day or sometimes hour to hour. So I think people have like better mentalities about stuff. 
and are um, kind of better equipped like in situations like this. Sure, and, and even though I live in the entertainment industry myself, I'm shooting myself in the foot to say something like this, but uh, I think a lot of people really started to care less um, about celebrity. Uh, I, th I think that I think the world woke up to how unimportant the Kardashians are, for example, you know, um, and I'm not to say, you know, you know, I still have my heroes. I still have my rock stars that I look up to. And, and, and you know, my, my best friend in the entire world is one of the biggest rock stars in the planet. And, and he's very uh, there's value to him. But the the um, the tabloid version of celebrity, I think, finally got washed away more than that. You know, it, no one cares about some of that stuff. And I, I think the pandemic really opened everyone's eyes to how unimportant it is to try in your life to keep up with Hollywood. I definitely agree. I think it really shows like the, the human aspect of celebrities because like everybody went through the same thing. Like they weren't exempt from what was going on. Like, right. And I think that really just shows like the human side of it, that they're just people. That's right. That's right. And it was, it was, it was a opportunity for a lot of them to, um, you know, celebrities really interesting uh, lifestyle is you get molded into having to feel like the second you walk out of your house, you have to look and act like the people they think you are. Right. And for like people like Ellen and a lot of the talk show hosts and the Jimmy Kimmel's and all that stuff, it gave them an opportunity to take the costume off and they loved it. They loved doing the shows from their house and letting you see them with messy hair and, and, and all that stuff. It opened up a whole different world of, of um, a gate to, to that that I thought was I thought that was very interesting and endearing to be able to see some of that. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it seems like they were having, as you said, a really fun time just doing it. You know, I saw like, uh, I think it was either Fallon or Kimmel. I don't exactly remember, but he was wearing like sweatpants for one of the late night shows and stuff. So it just yeah. showed like that they don't have to wear a suit or dress up or do everything all the time. Right. right. The intellect is the content, not the clothes you're wearing or how your hair looks. And I think we learned all that. Exactly. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And I know you, you did allude to him. So, um, uh, for Brett, Brett Michaels, you are the band director, you're the guitarist for almost two decades now, I believe 19 years at this point. I think it's 19 years today or tomorrow. I'm not exactly sure, but yeah. <laughs> oh, that, that's awesome. I didn't even, I did not know that, but that's really cool. So I know you've, you've discussed this a lot, uh, but for my audience, anyone not familiar with you, how did you and Brett uh, first meet? Um, so the story is, the story can be enormously long or I can shorten it. I'm, oh, I'll, try you, I'll try to give you the medium version. Um, I was a giant Poison fan. I played Poison songs in my high school talent shows every year, all four years. Uh, you know, it, it, when you're in a band in high school, you get to play three songs at your talent show or whatever. And each year there was at least one Poison song. I know we did Cry Tough one year, we did Skinny Bop one year. Uh, we did nothing but a good time one year. And I think that I went back and did cry tough again in my senior year. I, but, um, I was, a, I was a giant poison fan. I understood what it was about and I, and I loved it and I embraced it. Um, and then in 92, when CC left the band, I, uh, 
I had to contact the management information and all that stuff. And I was able to put an audition tape in to try to join Poison. <laughs> and um, I was too young by the, I, I was just out of high school. And um, they picked Richie Kotzen out of thousands and thousands of people. I Because I was from Virginia, I literally grew up 60 miles from where Brett grew up. We're, we're really only about 60 miles apart. And um, uh, I thought that maybe I was a shoo-in from being part of that mid-Atlantic community. Um, but uh, they they took Richie Kotzen. They were nice enough to call and, and tell me that. Um, and I kept that management contact information. And then years and years later, Brett went out and did a solo tour. And uh, I called and got hooked up on several of the East Coast dates. I was able to be his opening act on the East Coast run. And then the next year he came back through again with another, a different band. And I was able to, uh, once again, do a run of, you know, stuff with my band Evic as his opener. And um, we, we had a great time. And uh, Brett's a little elusive during the day. He does meet and greets after the show and he meets every single fan and he has a history of, of, of being incredible to the fans. But, that's usually after the show. During the day, you don't really see him. But it turns out that he was watching through his bus window all the time. One, during one of the shows, uh, or two of the nights we played with him, we brought this huge camera crew in and we're shooting a video for our, our song, This Ain't the Life. That uh, And he was watching that happen from outside his bus. And you know, if you'd ask him, he would tell you that he was just impressed that the, the local opening act was was putting such an effort in to make this music video. He was watching, and he was watching me direct it and watching me kind of be the boss out the through the window all day, which is funny to me. I had no idea, but um, anyway, uh, the second, the third year came around of him doing solo stuff, and. Uh, his guitar player and me had become really, really tight buddies, and the guitar player had decided he wasn't going to uh, continue the next year. Um, and every year so far, he'd replaced the entire band with a new band. I, I just thought that was kind of what happened. So uh, the opportunity came for me to be his guitar player for that next year. Um, and in my head, I thought I'd I'd do it for a year. Again, everyone else had only done it for a year. Um, and I was prepared. And then he called me one day and he said, um, I have this small radio gig in Nashville or in um, Detroit. And instead of me bringing my band that you haven't rehearsed with yet, why don't you just bring your band and we'll be the band? And, uh, you know, he knew we were giant poison fans. And uh, so his idea of little and my idea of little are completely different things. And I got up there and we were unrehearsed. He just gave us a list of songs to know. We never got together, never went over the songs. They were Poison songs. Um, and it was 15,000 people. <laughs> so that wasn't little to me, right? And uh, it was terrible. We didn't. We, we played great. He played great. What neither of us had considered was that we were playing those Poison songs exactly as they were recorded on the records. But over 20-some years, live, the songs had evolved. And without 
us sitting down and rehearsing and playing together, there wasn't that communication. So while the audience probably didn't think it was bad at all, I felt the pull from him and he felt the pull from the band. And um, so he called me up later that week. I remember walking away going, oh, my God. Uh, well, I had one shot and I'd blown it. And I'd never really blown anything in my life. I'd been pretty good and successful at my goals to that point. So that was that was what I considered my first life failure <laughs> ever. Uh, and um, he called and he goes, well, how do you think that went? And I was like, oh, it's terrible. That was terrible. And uh, he goes, well, I'm glad you say that. If you would have thought it was good, then we would have had a problem. But the fact that you recognize that that was terrible, uh, he goes, I have another I have another show, Nashville, Tennessee. And he told me this time he was, I got all the specs. It was 33,000 people sold out show opening for Leonard Skinner at the Starwood Amphitheater. And um, right before we went on, he said, uh, Pete, I've watched your band. I know you. I know how great you guys are. Just go out there and be your band with me singing. Don't think anything of it. Just go be your band. And uh, we went and we played. And uh, at the end of Nothing But a Good Time, he smiled at me and we did a little high five, which to this day we've never done again. 19 years later and there's never been another. It's, it's not neither of our things. We're not high fivers, but for some reason we did that. And uh, and then 19 years later, here we are. Traveled the world for Billboard Top 40 records. Um, uh, number one. Uh, video, several number one videos on the VH1 countdown till they stopped doing that. Um, all kinds of all kinds of things I never dreamed of of doing. Every every um, every goal I ever had has been exceeded. Everything I ever dreamed of, uh, I've been able to do because of him. And uh, and here we are. No, it's really awesome. I think one of the the cool points about that is that you guys both recognize that that first uh, show after the first show that uh it wasn't you know the best it didn't mesh but uh you guys gave it another shot and it sounds like obviously it worked because you you're still here 19 years later uh doing it with brett michaels and that's really awesome it, it's absolutely true <laughs> <laughs> but but also like for for brett you know he's done you know huge stadium you know shows and tours and all that that uh, fifteen thousand people is considered a, a small show for him you know, yeah, it's kind of funny. Without, without a doubt yep that's true. It's it's crazy the crowds he pulls. You know, we we're you know, we've done I remember on the fifth of July, even though it was fourth of July weekend, it was fourth of July celebration. On the fifth of July, we played uh, under the arch in St. Louis for hundred and twenty-five thousand people. You couldn't even comprehend the where the people were. They were out into the streets and off into the sides and behind us, piled up to the river and and uh, it it was it was amazing. It, you know, that kind of stuff you see in the European metal festivals. You don't see a lot of 125,000 people in the United States, you know. And we've done it a couple of times. We did it in Idaho too, right at the hit of Rock of Love. We did uh, some radio festival with us, and I think uh, God forgive me. It's it was either New Kids in the, on the Block or In Sync. It was one of the two of those guys, and. Um, and it was a hundred and some thousand people. I remember seeing in the newspaper the next morning the helicopter shot, and it just—it was unbelievable to think I got to be a part of something like that. Yeah, definitely. And like looking out of that, you know, the, the huge, the huge crowd. Like, does it register with you right away? Like, 
how many people are actually there? When you're on the stage, to me, it never has. Uh, you don't see past the first few anyway, you know, so I don't comprehend. I mean, you can go walk out and you can hear the energy and you can feel the energy, but visually uh, you lose perception after a certain distance anyway, right? You know, when you're outside, when you're inside in an inside arena, you, you, you can comprehend it because you can see the end of it and see the stadium going up or the arena going up. But yeah, those outside things, you just go out there and, and you go for it and and you just feed you feed the, the energy is, is it's it's unbelievable it's like a rechargeable a battery recharging thing but uh yeah as far as comprehending it there's when you're on the stage i don't know that there's much difference in 5000 and 125000 while you're performing no i should definitely i've i've never really been i've been part of like you know stadium shows and all that but not like uh, not 125000 people uh things right. you know being caught up. I've seen photos, I've seen video of it, but it, it probably is something else to be there. Oh, it's amazing, without a doubt. And, and for you, um, what is your uh, favorite uh, Poison and uh, Brett Michaels song? Oh, geez, buddy. Um, I'm giving you the hard questions for this one. <laughs> so the favorite Poison song is, um, there's multiple answers to that. Cry Tough off the first record is probably... Uh, one of the most important songs of my life. It landed me where I'm at today. I would not be speaking to you today if it wasn't for Cry Tough. Uh, it, the song grabbed me when I was a very young kid, when it first came out. A buddy of mine used to go to Los Angeles like once a month and and get all the local bands tapes and releases and bring them back to us. And we would be riding our bikes on our suburban street in the, in the, evenings and he would we'd be listening to new bands that no one had heard yet and at one particular time he'd gotten back and he's like this is brand new band poison this is their record and i i begged him if i could take his tape home that night and i don't know that i ever gave it back but it had that kind of, it, whatever that particular song cry tough had this huge impact on me um moving forward uh the flesh and blood record has a song on it called life loves a tragedy it's the last song on the record uh, I have the lyrics to that tattooed on my arm. Uh, it's a very powerful song. Very um, lyrically, the message was was big and important to me. Um, so that's that's probably those two songs are probably my favorite songs. But live, uh, my favorite is "Ride the Wind." Nice, those very very solid uh, uh, songs, and definitely very close and meaningful to you, which is really awesome. I actually didn't know you had the the lyrics. Uh, tattooed on your arm and that, that's really cool and just another connection uh with that song as well yeah and then as far as the brett michaels solo stuff um that becomes weird because you know he had two records before i was in the band and four since i've been in the band so picking what my favorite stuff is is hard because i i'm obviously going to pick the stuff that that i yeah. wrote <laughs> uh but before i moved to that uh on his first two records uh he had a song called open road it was kind of a country single and uh, it's a smash hit song. The message in it's great. The vibe in it's great. The song, I, I love the song tremendously. Um, I love all I ever needed, which was his first ballad release. Um, you know, and we've reworked that song a little bit. I like our version a lot, but the song the song's great. Um, he had a song called bittersweet 
that had an enormous amount of energy and a funny story to it that I really, 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 really loved. Um, I still love. Um, as far as the stuff that I've written with him, Go That Far, which is the theme to Rock of Love, was the first song that me and him ever wrote together. And um, I think because it was the first song in my life that I was part of that was considered a hit. It was number one on the VH1 charts for 14 weeks in a row, um, or maybe 21 weeks, 14 or 21, I'm not sure. But um, it was uh, it it was put in the Guitar Hero 3 game, which was the, you know, for two years, that was the only game that mattered in the whole world. And and there was my guitar riff in that, song, in that game. Um, and it was used as the theme to the Miss Universe pageant at one point at one year. Um, so that song is powerful to me. It, it put me on the map. It gave me a credit as a songwriter, as a producer and a guitar player that I hadn't had till then. So I love that. Uh, but there's also a song called riding against the wind that became the theme song to the other show life as I know it. And, um, that's probably my favorite song of, of all the stuff that we've, we've done together. Um, and then Unbroken, we did that song Unbroken a couple of years ago with his daughter singing on it. And um, I don't know that that's my favorite song, but it's probably the one I'm absolutely the most proud of. It came out exactly like it was supposed to. It is, it is crafted uh, perfectly. When we listen back to it, it's, there's no, we could have done this or we should have done that. It is exactly as it was intended, sonically, musically, energy. So, you know, every song has a reason or purpose, and I like them all for different reasons. No, I really like that. I know it was, it's, a, it's a tough question. I, I know asking that is a tough question for you, but I really like uh, the, the songs you were talking about and the reasons behind that as well. I think that it's really awesome. I do appreciate you uh, answering that question. I know some people... I like, uh, the, hard, I like the hard questions. Go for it. I know some people shy away from it, but I really appreciate it. But big news for you, you recently released uh, two songs and your first uh, single, original single, under uh, your own name in over a decade. But I do want to talk about the 99 Red Balloons cover you did first. Okay. Uh, what was the inspiration uh, for covering that 80s hit? Um Again, I'll try to make the story short, but it's it's an enormously long story. Um, I was I was born in 1972. I was raised in the 70s and 80s when the threat of nuclear war was just um, it's what we lived through. In school, we had you know you hear about these things where uh, they would have us get under our desks and you know, bomb threats and and um, it petrified me. It it. I was terrified of it. I had to seek therapy in elementary school because of my fear that the bombs were dropping all the time. And um, in 1983, 84, that 99 Red Balloon song came out and I grabbed it and I used it as my own therapy. I felt like, oh my God, someone feels the way I do. It's a war protest song. It's an anti-nuclear war song. And I don't know that a lot of people really ever understood that because most time here in the United States, uh, even though there was an American version of it lyrically, it was uh, MTV always showed the German version because the woman that wrote it and sang it, Nina is German. And I don't know if you know this or not, she is still a current valuable force in the music industry in Germany. She still sells out stadiums out there. She still continues to write more music. She's, she's better looking and in better shape than she ever was 
and 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 she's she's still just she's an icon over there. She's Madonna over there, or you know what I mean. And um, anyway, uh, I held on to the song, and it was an important part of getting me through my childhood. And it's really weird. I've said in a few other interviews, looking back, you know, uh, I was I was full on by that time in sixth grade. I was full on Van Halen, Kiss, Quiet Riot, and Def Leppard, and Ozzy Osbourne, and it. I wasn't a new waiver. I, as much as I love, I love all of that stuff now. Cindy Lauper and and Duran Duran and all. I love it all now. But back then, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't catch me even saying the word Duran Duran. So the fact that that song that was from that kind of new wave synth pop stuff snuck into my brain, uh, that was powerful in itself, you know. But I loved it and I carried it with me. And then this war broke out in the Ukraine, and it broke my heart and it paralyzed me and it. I reverted back to 13-year-old me again and all. I could not believe the headlines were saying the just the word nuclear. I couldn't believe I was seeing that. You know what I mean? And I and the word Russia and the word nuclear, it was just like, is life and time just going backwards? And uh, I was consumed by it. I irritated everyone around me for a couple of days. No one wanted to speak to me. No one, they just, they just were tired of hearing me talk about this is happening. So I went into my studio and... I found the song again. I pulled it out of my heart and I just started playing it and singing it and strumming it and just, just using it as therapy to deal with what I was going through myself, you know, and then I recorded it and I sent it to a couple of people that are real honest with me about my life. And, 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 and they tell me whether it's good or bad. They don't, they aren't yes men. And uh, it was unanimous that it was cool that people thought it was cool. And uh, so because of that, I thought that I would, um, shoot a video and the opening of the video is a nod back to the original video where she's walking around in a field. But then when the song kicks in, I just put all the footage of the destruction and everything going on in the Ukraine behind me and the guys playing. And uh, my hope was, you know, I know a lot of people, especially since COVID that have literally just turned the news off. There's a, there's a whole movement of, I can't watch the news. I don't want to know. And I don't believe in that. And um, so I thought, well, if you're not going to watch the news, maybe you'll watch my video and see what's happening. Let me show you what is happening in, in the rest of the world. And, you know, I didn't tie the song to any particular charity, but I was hoping that there's so many charities uh, and ways to give and help Ukraine that uh, I just hope people would see the song, see the video see the destruction in, in, in the images and choose to try to help whatever way they can. I tried uh, very hard to uh, find a way to go over there, to be honest with you. Uh, I had it in my head for a couple of weeks that I was going to get over there, land in Poland, and then just put my acoustic guitar on my back and walk into the Ukraine. And I was going to go down to that subway station that they were all hiding in. And I was just going to sing for them. I was, you know, I had it in my head. I was going to do that. Uh, I, I, I went as far as to uh, go behind Brett's back and talk to Brett's pilots about what it would cost to fly his plane, Brett, you know, Brett has his plane, how to get over there. Uh, and they all just thought I was crazy. No one, no one was going to do that. You know, they were like, you understand that if you just think you're going to walk through that border from Poland, that they're, that you're going to get shot, you're going to die. And at that point, I, at that point, I was ready because 
I couldn't comprehend. You know, you can talk conspiracy theories. You can like CNN. You can like Fox. You can hate one or the other. You whatever you want to believe. People are dying over there. What what you aren't you can't fake that. And and it's civilians. There's there's no there's no you know there there's a lot of if you if you dig deep enough into the conspiracies and the rabbit holes, the president of Ukraine uh, was a former actor. I don't know if you know that. I do, yes. Award-winning actor whose biggest role was playing the president. Yeah. So he has a head up with propaganda, and uh, he, you know he has a, he has a leg up on Putin on on propaganda and selling his side of this. And there's a lot of people that kind of think that that might be happening. You know what I mean? But no matter who's selling their side of the story, better civilians are dying, and it's fucked up. And that's all there is to it. No, I, I definitely agree. And with, with with everything that is going on, if you boil everything down, if you don't pay attention to like, oh, conspiracies, you know, all that stuff, you know, people are dying over there. And innocent people who, you know, they're just trying to live their life and they're getting either shot or blown up or anything. It, it's very sad. And I know I didn't live, you know, during, during the Cold War of the 80s. So I don't really know like the, you know, the nuclear you know threats that were back then. But like seeing it, the like, caption on news, just like, Russia, you know, considering nuclear strike and all that stuff, it's very terrifying. It's very, you know, unnerving, especially with just all that is going on. It's just scary, you know, for me to see uh, it on the news, but for you to relive what was going on in the 80s now, yeah, yeah, it's got to be completely different. You know, what's funny is when it all started, I didn't want to talk about it to anyone. Uh, I talked to my close friends about it, but I didn't want to talk a lot about it. And I've done probably nine or 10 interviews now. Um, with people like yourself and every one of them has come back to me and said that they felt it too. And they felt the terror, of, the, the, the terror of seeing that word. And it, it's, I'm glad I'm not alone in that, man. Cause I just thought I was crazy, crazy and, and selfish. And, you know, why do I care? Why, why should I care? I'm over here uh, playing sold out shows and, and playing rock star. You know, who wants to listen to me talk about this when they're dying over there? I felt really weird about my opinion on it. Um, and then to hear, and again, that hearing it from you, a younger generation who did not go through what me and my peers and friends went through in the eighties, uh, hearing that it affected you, that that just struck a nerve with me. That's tremendous to me, and it's proof. It's proof that it's real, you know. And I understand that the news outlets at this point in life are using scare tactics. I understand that, but the fact is, there those are quotes. Putin said those things. So scare me all you want. He said it, <laughs> you know, you, there's, there's video footage of him saying these things. He said it today, right? But I hate to tell you, but right before I logged onto you, I was watching uh, him talk. And what did he say today? Uh, make no mistakes. Uh, we have the tools to act swiftly if anyone truly interferes and we feel have stopped us from any other person other than the Ukraine have stopped us from, from our, obtaining our goals. We are going to act swiftly. Whatever he said, I I was fascinated because it, it, right before I started talking to you, he's still going at it. And I thought he was in the hospital and, and something. Well, I don't know, but it's just, you know, my, my biggest fear is that the guy's an egomaniac and you have to be an egomaniac to be a world leader. So I'm not, you know, to be a to be a guitar player in a rock band, you have to be an egomaniac. You there's a certain level to succeed like that 
that you you have to be uh, neurotic and you have to be um, almost um, what's the word? There's a word narcissistic. You have to be to to, to have the drive to get. You can't be a world leader without some sort of narcissism. You have to be. Uh, and with that being said, the worst thing about all of this is that he didn't take that little tiny country over in 24 hours. And when an egomaniac's embarrassed, they'll stop at nothing. And I'm more afraid now with each passing day that he's not succeeding, it's a, the more egg he has on his face. It's it something, I mean, he'll, he'll die for this now because he has to go down. He's going down in history. He's making his place in history. So in his brain, He's he's got to be thinking. Do I go down? What's my last stand here? What do I just say? Is my mark in world history that I couldn't win the Ukraine back for Ukraine, or is my mark that I launched every bomb I could at everybody I could and went out in a blaze of glory? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think his name will go down, you know, in infamy, you know, for obviously wrong reasons, but his name will be in the record book. The embarrassing thing about all this is to this day, we're the only country that's ever dropped one and we dropped two. So sometimes it's like, who are we to say you can't drop one? We did it. You know, and I understand we learned from our mistakes and I understand that. But uh, but I believe that I believe that Putin's not going to drop it on the Ukraine because he wants that land. <clears throat> so why ruin that land? But I do believe that he's crazy enough to fire one at us, knowing that we have the technology to shoot it down, knowing that it's never really going to hit us. But he's going to be able to say, I did it. I'm the one that did what all you people want to do. I did what the Middle East wants to do. And I did what China wants to do. And I did what North Korea wants to do. And I think that that's what he wants his legacy to be. Yeah, I think so. It, it, it's unfortunate. You know, a lot of people are unne uh, unnecessarily suffering for this, you know, for really just to please one person. I think right. that is a true shame. Right. And, we're, you know, it, we're, we're in a world of living in fear again. It's ridiculous, man. You know what I mean? But it is what it is. <laughs> no, exactly. But no, I, I do appreciate you talking about it and uh, everything. And, you know, obviously covering red, 99 red balloons and getting the word out and message that if people aren't paying attention to what's going on in the news or anything, that they at least uh, get a little bit of taste of it. And, yeah. hopefully, and you know uh, what's inter interesting? I, I've forgotten to talk about this on almost every single interview that I've done, but uh, the, the, the 99 red balloons song has made it onto a very popular music chart in the UK. And it's been on it for five weeks now. And start we entered it number 30, and we were up to number 20 this week with it. And it's really unique um, to me to, to see that uh, I'm on the chart with the Scorpions and uh, other bands that, you know, the, the United States is so small. And a lot of us think that we know everything about everything and that anything that happens in the United States is global. But I'm on this chart right now with UB40 and uh, Men Without Hats and uh, Mickey Dolans and uh, the Scorpions, Pink Floyd, um, and all these artists that are still releasing new music and are still viable around the world that we think don't do anything anymore. 
It's interesting to me. And it's it's great to be on that chart. I, I, I'm honored to. Uh, that's my first real international uh, success of any kind. So after after, you know, all these years in the music business. <laughs> Well, hey, I'm I'm really happy about uh, for you about that song as well, and it's it is interesting. Like you think the people who um, you, know, you know, like the one hit wonders, or like 99 Red Balloons, for example. I didn't know she's still active. That she's still you know selling out shows and all you that. I had no idea. You got to look it up. In fact, she does a version of her own song, 99 Red Balloons, now, and it uh, she's singing in German, but I can tell the words are completely different of something I saw her do just this year, and. Uh, so somewhere along the line, she's um, rewritten it about probably the world we're in today, you know, yeah. but she's, it's awesome. She's performing in the band's great and she's great. It, it's worth checking out. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm going to have to really check that out because uh, I'm very curious about how just the, the evolution of just herself and just that she's still active. I'm, I'm definitely going to check that out now. Right on. Uh, but real quick. Uh, so you did release uh, a new original song. Uh, that is entitled My Best Days. Uh, how was it writing and recording that and actually releasing a song uh, more than a decade uh, after releasing uh, your last material? You know, um, so when I write epic music, uh, I tend to lyrically approach it uh, what I call the Bon Jovi, John Cougar, Mellencamp approach. Um, yeah, well, you're from Indiana. So do yes, you know Mellencamp? Yes, you got to know who he is. Oh, no, I, of course I do. I'm, I'm familiar with him, yes. He, he's one of my favorite artists of all time. Uh, I love his uh, hometown lyric approaches about the people approach. I, I, love, I love that. That's who I am and what I write about. However, once I ended up in Brett's band, life changed for me. And I was uh, in, you know, I, I, I was in Penthouse Suites in New York City, and I was at the Playboy Mansion, and I was in private planes, and I was in cush dressing rooms in giant arenas. And uh, I felt like I didn't have anything to say that anyone could relate to. I didn't, I don't know that I could have written a song about me and, you know, been, and today I flew on this private plane. You didn't get to do that. No one wants to hear that. You, you know, you know, that's my dog. This is Boba. <laughs> What's your dog's uh, name? Boba's more famous than me. And it is Star Wars Day, and he's named after Boba Fett. But, uh, but, uh, that's awesome. Boba's more famous than me. He has 15,000 Instagram followers. Not right on. Bring him back on. I, I want to get some more followers. Come here. Come here. 150,000 TikTok followers, too. <laughs> Jeez. Well, good for him. Um, good for him. So, so I just felt like I didn't have anything that I could sing that would that anyone would relate to. Because I like to write relatable lyrics, you know. Uh, and then when COVID happened and all that shut down, I found myself me again. You know, and I was able to write some things. And best days to me is just, um, it's a very important message because we're in a, a world today where everyone's talking about back in the day. Everyone's like, oh, I wish that it was the 80s again, or I wish it was the 90s. No one seems to like the world we're in right now. Right. And I just kept thinking, if this is it, then I don't, I don't, I mean, I wasn't suicidal or anything, but like, what's the point of this if, if, all we're going to do is talk about how cool 1988 was, <laughs> you know? And, and so I was inspired to write uh, 
you know, the lyric is I've lived my life with no regrets. I have a million stories I can't forget. It's been a hell of a ride, but I'm willing to bet my best days aren't behind me yet. And it's, it was just a reach to people to say, tomorrow's going to be better. Tomorrow's got to be better. Something cool's got to be coming, not for, maybe not for the whole world, but something for you, whatever, something for everybody. There's got to be something cool coming. And I just thought, I felt like it was a message that at least my generation really needed to hear. Uh, I, I, I felt like a little, a little positive inspiration might go a long way in this ever change. You know, it's like me and my business partner, Darren, were talking the other day. I am done. I've had enough living through historical events. We've had enough of them for our lifetime. <laughs> you know, there's going to be a whole set of history books just about the last couple of years when we're all dead and gone. You know what I mean? And, uh, uh, and so that's what the song was about, uh, was about moving forward instead of the past. But I do like nostalgia. So I, in producing the song, I did everything I could to intentionally produce it to sound like a Bon Jovi song from the 80s. So when you put it on, when I was a kid, that's where I went to feel good was the New Jersey record, Bon Jovi, Slippery and Wetter, New Jersey record. And, you know, uh, there was a there was an era where even though Bon Jovi was one of the biggest bands in the world, there was this little era where metalhead dudes weren't supposed to like Bon Jovi. You know, James Hetfield used to have a, a guitar that said something about Bon Jovi sucks or, or something. And you had to follow suit to what Metallica said, right? You had to believe in James. He, he, you know, and so, but, but I never fell for it. I was always a Bon Jovi fan. And so sometimes I'd have to go listen to it in my car by myself because no one else, you know, and it's weird. I say no one else wanted to, but the dude was selling out three and four night stadiums every night all over the world, you know, but you know what I'm saying? As, as a young guy, it, it wasn't man rock like Metallica or Ozzy was, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, but I found, I found an enormous amount of joy and happiness in the Bon Jovi stuff. And when I wrote this song, I wanted to produce it and use the sounds and the tempos and, and the energy that reminded me of when I would put that song on and get in my car and drive to the beach. So that's how it came out. Yeah, and I think it's really cool to you know get that kind of mentality, mindset, uh, mindset uh, for it, and to remind people like even you know even for me, you know, I'm, I know I'm I'm very young, but I still reminisce to like you know five ten years ago, like where I, you know stuff was you know a little bit different for me. But you know you, for anyone really that uh, the best day, you know, there's still cool things that might have might be small cool things you know that happen every you know every couple of days, but at least it's still moments and memories to make. Right. That's right. The moments. That's exactly it. But it was cool. I was on another podcast, First Listen Media, and I was talking to uh, a, a host of a metal podcast, a metal cooking podcast. And he was talking about growing up like in the 80s being a metalhead, but also he liked Wham and Duran Duran, but he that's couldn't it. admit that to his metalhead friends because he would get laughed at, but he still that's secretly exactly liked those fans. Yeah. I, I, like I wasn't a big Duran Duran fan back in the day. Now they're one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, I I do an acoustic gig and I play a couple Duran Duran songs in the acoustic gig, um, you know. And I love Cindy Lauper to death, uh, and and uh, you know all, all that stuff. But back then I but I was a I was and always a Bon Jovi fan, a John Cougar Mellencamp fan, and a Brian Adams fan. Those I loved those guys back in the day, and I didn't hide that much. I do remember I always, I do have a memory of uh, we would all walk around the block with our boombox. Me and 
four or five of my friends. One of us would have a boom box and uh, we, you know, it was always Motley Crue or Van Halen or whatever. And, and, you know, I live and die for Van Halen. They're my favorite man in the whole world. They're everything in the world to me. And uh, I live and die for it. But um, I remember when Born in the USA came out, none of my friends wanted anything to do with it. And so I would walk with them around the block, but I'd walk a couple steps behind them with my own little boom box listening to Born in the USA. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. No, yeah, that's very cool. And from from Indiana, of course, I like John Mellencamp. Of course, um, I know uh, there's one radio station here. I, I'm pretty sure every day they play one of his songs. So I think, I think you have to if you're a radio station in Indiana. I think that's mandatory. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I can tell you, a Van Halen fan. I see a guitar uh, behind you as well. So I can definitely. Oh, yeah. There's two of them behind me. See the other oh, one? The black and yellow. Nice. <laughs> and a Van Halen T-shirt. And a. Nice. And I have a Van Halen. I think I have my Van Halen hoodie on too. Look at that. There's my Van Halen. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> no, hey, no, honestly, I, re I really like them. My brother, uh, he's a huge fan of Van Halen. And uh, that's who got me into listening to like the harder rock music. So, no, I, I totally feel you, man. Right on. But as, as I wrap this interview, I sorry I kept you a little bit longer, but I had, I have a really great time chatting with you. It feels like it was five minutes to me. So, that, that's what I go for. Long we're having fun and a great conversation. That is awesome. Uh, we're going to put you on the spot. What is your favorite music? Oh, sorry, sorry. What, what is your favorite moment from your music career so far? Or a few moments? Jeez. Um, I, I, was, I was fortunate enough that me and Brett got to get up and play uh, four songs in Las Vegas with uh, Sammy Hagar. And so having Brett and Sammy on the stage together and me playing guitar uh, to this day is still, I, sometimes I don't believe it's real. I have to go back and look at the video that that really <laughs> happened, you know? Uh, and then later that night, uh, Sammy texted Brett and said, you tell Pete anywhere, anytime he's welcome on my stage. And uh, Sammy's my favorite, man. He's my favorite singer. He's my favorite dude. He's my favorite everything. So to get that from him, that that that's huge um you know uh there there's every night on stage when we do the first big chord to every rose has a thorn um every night that moment's my favorite moment you know we hit that big note and we hold it out and the people just you know that that song the song changed the music industry in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people forget that. It was the first hard rock song to ever also cross over into the country charts ever, right? And overnight, every single band, whether you were, no matter who you were, you had to have a song like that. Overnight, in the same key, in the same tempo, every, even bands that were before Poison had to have that. And, and, um, and so, it's it's every night it's the moment we hit that note is is my favorite moment i guess you would say um you know and then uh it's just been a lot of there's just been a lot of neat moments um you know i i, I could go on and on but, but probably those two things are are what's important to me yeah, they definitely sound like, especially in the you know compliment and you know open invitation from Sammy Hagar, you know a, a true rock legend like that. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. 
for sure. I remember, I remember that day. Uh, you know, uh, there there was there was a another moment when Brett was on Sammy's TV show, Rock and Roll Roadshow, and uh, we were we were on some kind of downbreak, and me and Sammy were just sitting on a bench together, and I was playing with acoustic guitar, and I would play these obscure Van Halen riffs, not the popular stuff. And um, I, I played this one particular riff, uh, a song called 5150. And, oh, actually, I played, I played a song called Summer Nights. He goes, you can play that? And I said, yeah. And we kind of talked and laughed. And he said, uh, he goes, man, don't let anyone ever let you tell me different. You, you're all right, man. You're, you're, you're a great player. And, uh, you know, as a musician, nothing's ever enough. So I remember you play your first gig and you want a bigger gig. And then you want another gig. And I remember it was later in my life that I joined Brett's band. And I remember getting that far and going, oh, all right, if I just do this for a year, all the effort and all the years were worth it. And I could put this away and I can go and, you know, I can walk away from this. And that's not the case because then we did a shed tour opening up for Leonard Skinner and we were doing the giant amphitheaters. And then I was like, I remember saying to myself after that, Going all right. After that, I'm going to tell Brett that I'm going to go back and just go go back to living my life and raising my children. And there's always something that comes that, and you walk away with this itch, this itch that you know. And when Sammy said that to me, everything in my life changed at that moment. There was this. There was this. If it's all over tomorrow, you did it. I finally got. If it was his approval, made me feel like all the sacrifice, all the, you know, years of years when you're a kid, you're begging your friends to come to your show and you're calling everyone up and you're taking their money for their $5 cover charge at these bars and you're turning your back on your family. And the, the, the sacrifice you make on a normal life just to be a local club band and what you beg for and try to count on your friends and family to help you get to that success, you, you just wonder, was it worth it? And was that really worth it? And when he said that to me, I just went, oh, everything that ever happened was worth it. Sammy Hagar thinks I'm good enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I will tell you, I'm not going to discredit Brett for that because uh, I'm not going to take away from Brett because Brett's the greatest front man in rock and roll, and he's my best friend. And uh, I remember us being in a studio playing something, and I got really frustrated and uh, – I said, uh, I said something like, I just want this to be like Van Halen, and I can't make this guitar solo sound like Van Halen. And Brett said to me, Pete, I'd rather you play than Eddie on this. And it was overwhelming that that you, you know what I'm saying. That was that was that that Brett. You know, I guess I've been there 19 years, so I guess he does like what I do. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it was really neat to think that. For that moment, I realized he was choosing to have me. Does that make sense? You, you know, because um, he he knew Ed. He could have called Eddie Van Halen and said, "Hey, can you come play on this track?" Or anyone. He could call Slash, and 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 it never occurred to me that until that moment in the studio that it, it was me that he had chose to play that stuff. What an incredible honor that guy can do and have anybody on the records he wants. You know what I mean? 
no, I, I totally, I totally knew, know what you mean. With you know, all of his connections, all of his, you know, the the music uh, career he has, that he's working with you in the studio, and I think that that speaks a lot to your caliber as a musician. You, you know, you as a guitar player, and just you as a person as well. Right. I appreciate that you recognize that. Of course. Yeah. And uh, I think I think all of that is is very cool. Now, there, there's one thing I do got to touch on before I wrap up. Uh, before uh, I wrap up this interview, I talked about your candle company, which is the Shining Soul. How did that come about? How did you start that? All right. Um, I'm going to tell this really, really quick. <laughs> uh, we had been filming all three seasons of Rock of Love. The third season of Rock of Love uh, was filmed live on tour with us. So for, for I think, 12 weeks, 24-7, those cameras were on us. They were in the buses. They were in the dressing rooms. They were in the hotel rooms. And, you know, they film all week long to give you a half hour of television. Right. And the band was in every episode by season three, but we weren't we weren't characters. We weren't part of it, but we were working as hard as the main characters because the cameras were on all the time. Uh, and I was never concerned with TV while I was proud of and happy for Brett and grateful for the success that the TV show brought our band and brought Brett. I, I don't care to be on TV. It was never a goal of mine. It was never, I never once woke up in the morning and go, I hope I'm on TV one day. It, that was, you know, so it exhausted me and I was out of place. And uh, my marriage had ended during that third season. And um, I came home to an empty house and I was burnt out for the first time in my entire life. I did not want to play the guitar. I had never, I hadn't played sports. I had no hobbies. I have no interest in anything. Guitar and Star Wars are the only two things that have ever mattered in my entire life. And uh, I lit a candle in my house with all the lights off, and I was just kind of chilling out. And uh, it was supposed to smell like a wood-burning fireplace. And I didn't like the results. And I was just sitting there in the dark at like 2 o'clock in the morning watching this candle burn. And I went, I wonder if I can do that. I wonder if I can make a candle and make it better. And so I got consumed with it. I got consumed with it like when I was a child learning to play guitar. And uh, as I learned more about candle making, I learned that the wax that I was using was stuff that's made in Indiana, actually. Uh, hey, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, the, the soy wax that I use is made from the beans farmed in Indiana, all the soy farms out there. Yep. And I, because of all my years and my love for John Cougar Mellencamp, I had grown very attached to the hardship that the American farmers go through. And so I realized that if I can sell just one candle, that wax helped the farmer somehow, you know? So I got really attached to the fact that maybe I could help, help, the American economy and the American farmer. Uh, I also wanted to teach my kids entrepreneurism and show them how, what it's like to run a business. So I started it and it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And today, uh, today we have uh, 30 employees uh, and me and my business partner, uh, we, we work out of the manufacturing warehouse. We have three retail stores across three states and sell to 250 other locations around the country. We, we grew it into something pretty cool. Uh, I believe we make the best candle on the market. I believe it's the best candle. It's eco-friendly. Uh, I did everything I could. I worked really hard to, to make a superior product and I'm really proud of it. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm going to drop some links uh, for Shining Soul uh, in the description of this pod- podcast. Please check it out. I, I scoping out your store and all the products you offer. Looks like and, and eco-friendly. I'm I'm very big on that. Trying to uh, not pollute the earth and leave the earth a little bit better every right. day. So I, I'm big uh, big fan of that. You got to do everything you can. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. But uh, right. check out the links in the description for everything. Uh, Pete, I had a really great time. I did uh, too, buddy. I would keep going. I'm supposed to do another interview right this second, but I, I, know, would, I would just keep going, man. Like, I appreciate you talking to me so much. Yeah, no problem. For uh, Pete Evick uh, of uh, Brett Michaels and uh, Evick, thank you so much for hanging out with me here on Super Cool Radio. Of course, I'm your host as always, Matthew Thomas. Thank you so much for watching and listening. And remember, stay frosty. <laughs> thank you, man, so much. <laughs>